Welcome, Spark My Muse listeners. Today is a rare and special episode, and one I have to introduce in, in a really unfortunate set of circumstances. I'm shaken and I'm grieving right now. I interviewed a few days ago Anya Krugavoy Silver, and just a few days later, she passed away from terminal breast cancer that she had been fighting and thriving with for 14 years. She was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was pregnant with her son. And in our very frank and enjoyable but very honest episode, we talk about death. And I had no indication that she would be passing away so soon, even though death was imminent for her. We talk about one of her favorite songs, Ride by Lana Del Rey. And in an article she wrote about Lana Del Rey, an, an essay she wrote about Lana Del Rey, there's a point where she says, no one has gone through the precise experience that you're going through before. I could have six months or six years left. Each one of us on earth could have six months, six years. I'm riding just riding. Most days, that's enough. With that in mind, I hope that what turns out to be the final interview of Anya Silver, that we can remember her life, her very inspirational life, full of light, full of fierceness, full of honesty, that it can be an inspiring episode for us, that we can remember her poetry, which she reads very beautifully in this episode. And there will be links to, of course, her books, her website at the show notes at sparkmymuse.com. You can go there and find this for episode 139 and also at patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse for episode 139. And I ask that you would support the show uh, and help me to continue editing and producing this show. This was incredibly difficult to produce because I hadn't edited the show until after she passed away, so I had to hear her voice again, knowing that she was gone. I want to offer my deepest condolences to everyone who loved her and misses her now, and I hope that this show can bring um, a remembrance of her and a comfort in some way. Thank you so much for joining me. And I was hoping that we could maybe start off a little bit with some of your background, which is unique because you have immigrant parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could you back us up a little bit and talk about a little bit how it was growing up and um, some of your Greek Orthodox background? Okay. Um, yes, happily. Um, I always grew up with a sense that I wasn't totally American. I mean, I was, that I was American, but that I was different. My father um, was born in the Soviet Union in Ukraine, and my mother was born in Switzerland. Um, and then after the war, she moved to um, they had to move to, back to Germany because her father was a German citizen. And so I grew up speaking Russian and German. Um, I was a first generation um, American. And then they just kind of threw me into nursery school and I picked up English. And um, 
you know, so, but they didn't do normal things that American kids do. Like we didn't go to movies or sporting events. Like they just didn't have really a sense of that American culture. And so it always felt a little, a little bit on the edge and a little bit strange. And I think at the time, well, I remember feeling a little resentful that other kids were, were listening to pop music on the radio and my parents were just playing classical music records. Mm -hmm. But I think in retrospect, having that slightly outsider's difference mm. um, really was helpful for me in making me an observer of norms and mm. behaviors and just of people in general. And um, I know that being surrounded by all of these languages um, from their professor friends who are Spanish and Greek and mm. French um, and lots of Russians, we had lots of Russians, um, gave me a, a kind of excitement about language. I just loved hearing people coming over and speaking different languages. Mm. Even when I couldn't understand what they were saying, um, it, was, it was just a pleasure. I felt like it was exciting and yeah. a privilege. And so you grew up with sort of academics in your life, like th these were, your parents were sort of intellectuals then? Well, my father was a, um, had a PhD in philosophy, which he, he hadn't been raised with any money, but he became a refugee in Austria after mm. um, World War II. And he got a PhD in philosophy and then he moved to America. And of course, there were no jobs. So he was just doing manual labor. And then after Sputnik, people became desperate for Russian professors. Mm. Um, and so all of a sudden, this person who was working in a pharmaceutical lab throwing away dead animals, was offered jobs teaching at Syracuse and Princeton teaching Russian. So wow. he moved from his, it's sort of amazing. Um, so he moved from being a philosophy professor to teaching Russian literature and language, and he, he had to really retrain himself. But so, yes, it was a very, and then my mother had been, um, had been a fashion designer. She wasn't working anymore, but it was a house that really valued um had no real value for material success. That was just never anything that anyone in my family ever talked about. Um, mm -hmm. It was just a house that valued reading and um, intellect mm -hmm. and the arts. It was mm -hmm. definitely that kind of home. Yeah, and you had mentioned to me in an email that your father went back for a philosophy degree partially in some way because the Soviet Union was atheist and he was yeah. kind of mm -hmm. in a search of his own. Yeah, it was interesting. My, he said that my grandmother had always been religious, but the church was not legal at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so he he told me about going to one church service, and he was told not to tell anybody about it. Mm -hmm. And he saw a schoolmate of his there, and the next day they passed each other and looked at each other and didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely it was definitely an underground um, church, and I think he only went a couple of times. Um, but he after the fall of the Soviet Union. He, um, during which his own father had been murdered mm. um, in the in the purges, um, he went on a search for truth, and he wanted to know whether the truth could be found in communism or if there were some other system of truth that he believed in more. Mm. Um, he didn't believe in communism, but he thought, well, maybe it is the best system. Maybe I'm wrong. So um, he got his philosophy degree at um, with a Catholic. Uh, dissertation director and um he decided that god existed and mm. that that was the ultimate truth that could sort of organize his life mm. and he didn't even become a devout churchgoer until later when he married my mother but he was absolutely informed um by christianity and by the values that he picked up of christianity of helping others and um 
love and service. I mean, he was, service was a really, really strong um, ideal that he picked up from Christianity. Hmm. And so then um, how did this affect how you were brought up then? Well, so I was brought up in the Russian Orthodox Church mm-hmm. um, with my parents. And um, I love, I still love the church. It's I love the chanting and um, I love the egalitarianism of it. I know the church has a strong hierarchy that people tend to focus on, but mm-hmm. within a church, um, you know, the priest will often come down among the people to give the homily. And, um, it, you know, it's a, I, I found it was a very friendly down to earth kind of church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but most of all, I love the music and the smells and the way it involved all the senses mm. and my and my whole body. It was very. Um, I loved the Russian chanting that I couldn't understand. It to me just put me in a sort of mystical zone. Mm. Um, but there were political reasons that I didn't feel that it was the right church for me. Um, mainly as a woman, mm-hmm. knowing that I couldn't have a position of power in the church made me just feel like, uh, and I don't think most Russian Orthodox women feel this, but I felt like a second-class citizen, like, well, I couldn't aspire to be a priest, or I couldn't even aspire to be an altar server. And so mm-hmm. um, that really, um, and also the stance on gays and lesbians, you know, mm-hmm. there were just political stances that I was not comfortable with in terms of Christ's teachings, and so I eventually moved to the Episcopalian Church, which... Mm-hmm preserved a lot of that ritual, mm. um, but gave me more flexibility in what I, how I interpreted the values of Christianity mm-hmm. socially. Yeah. So keeping sort of the high church um, rituals and, and myths, if you will, in, in terms of that, right. um, the transcendent, the transcendence that you wind up feeling uh, part of something bigger than you are. Yes. Yeah, I wanted the transcendence, and I did try, and this is not at all a criticism of any of these churches, but mm-hmm. I did go to, you know, Methodist churches and um, Presbyterian churches and other churches, and but they, I was used to a more mystical church experience, mm-hmm. and so I felt very alien from those services, and in fact, I felt more comfortable when I went to synagogue with some of my Jewish friends mm. because uh, that the chanting and the focus on the ark was like the focus on communion. It was just, it just seemed like there were more connections there. I was more comfortable. And it didn't matter that I wasn't, it didn't even matter that I wasn't Jewish and I didn't understand the Hebrew. It mm-hmm. just spoke to me in a way. And so um, in the Episcopal Church, I found that. And, you know, I love the question of the Eucharist and what it means and mm. what exactly is the Eucharist and what exactly is the Trinity. I mean, I, I'm really comfortable not knowing these sorts of questions. Um, and I, the not knowing this is part of the faith for me. Yeah. And so that, was why I was really drawn to the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And yet I could feel, you know, I could feel comfortable as a woman knowing that if I had a daughter, she could become a priest. You know, that was important mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And then did this work its way into your poetry as well and, and some of these spiritual things from, from early on? When you're talking about picking the Episcopalian Church, what time frame are we talking about? No, it was actually a terrible time. Um, <laughs> I had been, <laughs> it was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been diagnosed with, can- with cancer while I was pregnant mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, I had not really been going to church. I said prayers on my own and meditated, but I didn't go to church. And I decided maybe I wanted to go to church. And I happened to pick the one Sunday that was baptism Sunday. And mm. so all of the parents were back. There were a lot of parents baptizing their kids then, walking them down the aisle. And I was, you know, bald and pregnant. I didn't know if the 
pregnancy would work. I didn't know if I would survive. And I just felt so angry and I felt unfairly. And this is, of course, silly now knowing the members of the church that I was the only person in the church who really had any problems at all. And Mm. this this triumphant narrative didn't of Christ coming back to earth didn't work for me. And so Mm. I literally ran from the church in tears and went to the bathroom Mm. and sort of collapsed in the bathroom floor and just prayed. And I felt the spirit come upon me. And then um, later I went back and I got to know people. I realized that this was a church that welcomed broken people and people in need. And Mm. um, so it it became a place where I was really comfortable and felt valued Mm. and, and, and felt like I could talk about Jesus honestly and God honestly with um, the priests. What made you go back when it was so, such a like fraught experience that time? Well, part of it was that I really wanted a community that I that just praying on my own wasn't giving me the sense of community that I needed. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be around other people who had faith or belief because it held me up somehow in my own faith mm-hmm. to know that I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted my son to have some experience with transcendent and mm. after he was born and, and the divine to believe in God. And, and I know that, you know, his faith journey will be his own. I don't know what he'll choose, but I want him to understand my belief in God and hopefully to share it just because I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I, I believe it. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I, did, I wanted to make sure he could be part of a tradition. Mm-hmm. To introduce, at least introduce the idea that if he wants to embrace that, he can. It won't be like held from his life or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. And then as you, so I'm sure it had an effect on obviously your life and, and your work. And do you see any particular poems that if you want to read one or something that that it worked its way into some of your work? Um, oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's worked out, uh, its way into a lot of my work, especially um, the rituals. Um, mm-hmm. I found a lot of comfort in rituals because it gave me a way to order my experience. And I mm-hmm. guess I would say church is like poetry in that way, mm-hmm. um, in that it um, helped me sort of understand what was happening to me and give me mm-hmm. uh, some sort of framework for trying to understand it. Um, and so, for example... Um, Gosh, I'm just, uh, I have, well, Lent, for example, I really, really spoke to that idea of Christ being broken um, mm-hmm. and understanding that. But there's a poem, there's a poem I wrote called Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. from my first book. Should I just read it? That would be wonderful. Okay. So I love Ash Wednesday and mm. many people find this a depressing holiday, but to me it is all about the transience of all life. And so it um, is really about a kind of radical equality of all living creatures that cuts, mm. you know, beyond all other forms of status and that we have in the world. So this is the poem that I wrote afterwards. Ash Wednesday. How comforting the smudge on each forehead. I'm not to be singled out after all. From dust you came to dust you will return. My mastectomy a memento mori, prosthesis smooth as a polished skull. I like the solidity of this prayer, the ointment thumbed into my forehead, my knees pressing hard on the velvet rail. If God won't give me his body to clutch, I'll grind this soot in my skin instead. 
If I can't hold the flame that burned my breast, I'll char my brow, I'll blacken my pores, I'll flaunt with ash this flaw in his creation. That was from the 93rd, I've got my first book. I liked the, I liked the physicality of ritual, mm-hmm. like the anointment for healing. I like the sense that someone's touching me and I'm in my body and mm-hmm. I'm aware of what my body is doing and how I'm kneeling and standing mm-hmm. or bending or whatever I'm doing. Um, but at the same time, there's a frustration that that's all I have because God remains so ineffable Um, And there's this desire to hold God or clutch at something that I'll never get. There's no physicality to God. So Mm. the only physicality to God that can be found really is in rituals like this. And I think that's why they're important to me. They're kind of a way to capture Mm -hmm. God in a little, in a little moment. Yeah. It's bringing, it's bringing some of that into the the physical world. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, And what's interesting, you touched on it just before you read it, it kind of cuts through all of the different, like everybody can get a smudge on their forehead. It kind of cuts through all of the different types of people. And, and um, you know, we're, we're all made out of the same stuff, right. material. Like ultimately, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to end up dead someday. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there's, um, there's, there's just a... a a primary equality to all human life that, that mm. I think Ash Wednesday, I think the, you know, all of Lent and, and Easter gets to. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, that's, it's humbling, mm-hmm. you know, not to think too highly of yourself because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you don't, you could be dead tomorrow. You don't mm-hmm. know. Well, you know and, yeah. And it's, and it's, it's realistic. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not in a, in a way like I'm, I'm nothing. I'm dust. I'm dirt. Right, right, but, right. But it's like I am dust. I will go physically, away. Yeah, right, I will go right. Away. I'm like I'm physically dust. I will go. My body will go away. It will be burned or burned or whatever. Like this body is temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really, it's a. I mean, if you accept that, it's a. I don't know. It's very difficult because I'm very attached to the idea of myself. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, as we all are. But it, it is a. It's such a freeing thing when I can just get beyond that caring about that really we'll touch on this a little bit more because some people Mm -hmm. aren't as aware you you mentioned it a little bit but that you're living and thriving with inflammatory breast cancer these Mm -hmm. 14 or so years and Mm -hmm. that so the death is before your eyes as the Benedictines say keep death before your eyes is, is the right. is the admonishment to the Benedictine um, monks and that that is actually a clarifying um, thing you're supposed to do but of course in in the sense that y- you have something that you don't want a disease that you right. don't want and right. like it or not that is what's happening to you but it informs how you live Oh, absolutely. I know the um, Anatole Broyard um, in one of his writings wrote that um, the knowledge of death or dying makes you very smart. You realize that you know things that other people don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a wisdom that comes with that knowledge. I'm not saying that wisdom in a snooty way, like, oh, I'm so wise, but there's just a, there's just a constant consciousness of death that you have when you face it, that Mm -hmm. other people can say that they're going to die, but it's not really true to them. But I mean, I, I, 
you know, this last week I lost mm. three women I know, oh. and one of them was a very good friend of mine. And so um, there's never an end to death. And so I, I think the Benedictine um, requirement is it's a, it's a good one because I feel like we need to live our lives knowing how temporary they are, mm-hmm. but it's also so, so painful. It's mm. just um, living with an emotional burden that never goes away. And it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter if I'm doing well or not, mm-hmm. but um, you know, you talk to a friend one day and the next day you email her and she's dead. Mm. Um, and you have to sort of just absorb that into your life. And it's, I don't know that able people really understand the, depth of that kind of stress and despair, you know, even if you believe in God and you believe in transitioning and, and in the afterlife, it, it, that doesn't really help at that moment mm-hmm. that much. Does it seem just so terribly strange too? like, even though you're acquainted with it, does it still yeah. seem like, what was, what is that? Well, it, it, it <laughs> seems strange. And it, you know, I, I really like Job and I like the Psalms uh-huh. because they um, allow you to be angry with God. And uh-huh. I think that um, in my embrace of faith, that has been a, a pretty large part of it has been kind of carrying on this conversation with God about why are you doing this? You know, why are you, mm-hmm. why did you create a world in which children are being separated from their families at the border? Why, mm-hmm. why are you bringing a world in which 40-year-old women who have newborns are dying of cancer? Couldn't you have done a better mm-hmm. job sort of in creating this world? And mm-hmm. um, obviously there are no answers and I'm not going to get one, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think it does put me in a constant kind of conversation. And mm-hmm. sometimes I really I get, you know, I get very angry at God. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, part of my faith. That's mm-hmm. just that you know, I, I, I'm not reconciled to it, you know, yeah. nothing atones for it to me. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. like someone saying, Oh, but spring will go on. That's, uh, I don't care. That doesn't atone for yeah. the horror of death for me. Yes. Yeah. And have you, uh, did you want to read anything r- related to that? Well, this is, this, this one that's sort of, it's not really specifically about, um, about, it is about cancer, but it's sort of less specifically about cancer, but it's, um, it, this is, it's about the, that sort of, again, that equality of death this is from the, from nothing. Mm. Um, this book is called red never lasts. And it's about, um, actually about nail polish. <laughs> I was looking at, I love red nail polish. I was just, um, squatting down in the, uh, Walgreens looking at names of nail polishes. So these are all nail, names of nail polishes, but, um, this is really about that awareness of, of death, this poem, but, um, in a more, I guess, funny way. So this is called Red Never Lasts. There's no doubt it's the most glamorous, the one you reach for first, its luscious gloss. Russian roulette, first dance, aperitif, cherry pop. For three days, your nails are a Ferris wheel, a field of roses, a flashing neon open sign. Whatever you're wearing feels like a tight dress and your hair tousles like Marilyn's on the beach. But soon, after dishwashing, typing, mopping, the chips begin, first at the very tips and edges where you hardly notice, then whole shards. 
Eventually, the fuss is too much to maintain. Time to settle into the neutral tones. Baby's breath, curtain call, bone. Mm. (laughs) My way, I guess, of dealing with that, not that constant knowledge of death, even in something as as day-to-day as the nail polish color you're putting on your your fingers. (laughs) Yeah, and... um, I mentioned to you in an email about losing my father at an early, he was at a young age and, and I was at a yeah. young age as well and constantly considering the idea of of when death arrives um, and the surprise of it or the reality of it has been a constant companion to me. Um, and, yeah. and at first thinking of how, what a cosmic mistake, what a terrible cosmic right. mistake and wrestling and wrestling and wrestling and and taking it very personally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> and, uh, right, right. Right? Um, yeah. And then, you know, going into, you know, what, what sort of, you know, all my, my particular journey going into all sorts of making excuses for God, defending God, coming right, up with right. all different kinds of, well, maybe it meant this, maybe it meant this. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, right. trying to, how does a good a God. Hole. Yeah, exactly. And, and you go through. Yeah you know, everybody's going to go through their different reasons and everybody has their different sufferings. And what kind of picture are you going to paint of God? And, and then going into, uh, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm thinking of God as, as if God's a person or what kind of person would do this. Right. And, and then thinking, well, I guess I, uh, being an atheist of that particular God. Right. Well, that's an interesting way to put it in atheist of that particular God. I, I had, um, a couple of Thanksgivings ago, a friend of mine was dying and I was mm. lying in bed with her and we were just crying mm. because she didn't want to die. And mm. um, I wrote in this, the last two poems, this um, last two lines of this poem, Fourth Advent, are merciful one begotten of woman, understand how difficult it is to trust that you are kind. Mm. And that's sort of that idea of God that, well, maybe God isn't kind. Maybe God doesn't really... Or maybe God doesn't feel the way we feel or mm-hmm. intervene the way we, mm-hmm. we feel. I mean, I've had a lot of issues with intercessionary prayer mm-hmm. um, because I think, well, it's not really fair that this person should survive just because a lot of people pray for him or her, but this person doesn't have any friends or mm. was raised somewhere else or isn't religious, doesn't get that same. But that's just, that doesn't make sense to me that a God mm-hmm. would be fickle like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's just had to, um, I've had to accept a God that I don't understand and will never understand, mm-hmm. um, but that I can still feel the presence of in times of great need, and mm. that's the really the the hope that I get. That's the strength that I get. So, at the same time that you feel angry in a, I mean, you feel angry in a personal way at times, but then right. you still get comfort from the same God. I do, and it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes I feel one and not the other. Right. Usually I feel of one and I sort of veer back and forth. Sure. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, my priest said, basically when I asked him why is this happening to me, my priest said, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know where God is, what God does. All I know is that God is with you. And so mm-hmm. that, when I'm like, when I'm having a panic attack, I'm just, um, you know, gasping and fear and anxiety and thinking I'm dying or whatever. Um and I just 
I just think, okay, I don't know what God's going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask God for anything. I'm just going to think, okay, God is present. And mm-hmm. if I really can get into that trust enough, I can feel God being present. And mm-hmm. it doesn't happen all the time. But when I do, I do feel like it's a, a, a great healing comfort. And the thing is, you know, really, what do I think I'm entitled to? I mean, life doesn't entitle us to an easy life. Like we're not, mm. we're not born guaranteed an easy or life. Like we're not born guaranteed happiness. It's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, what do I really think for myself? I don't mm-hmm. deserve more than the next person. I mean, you know. And are you able so. to sense God or divine presence through others? Like, do you ever sense God in someone else in love toward you or anything like that? Oh gosh, definitely. Mm. I mean, you know, and like in, in healings in church when people put their hands on you and oh. you put your hands on them, yeah. I just feel, I mean, the God there is in the hands. It's not in the oil oh. or the prayers, so it's in the hands that are touching me. And, just, mm-hmm. and usually when I'm doing it, I feel the most power when I'm touching someone, when I'm not the one being touched, mm-hmm. but I'm touching someone else. I'm trying so hard to concentrate on what that person feels like and to mm-hmm. somehow infuse some strength into them. And I, I really, I feel that in that that bond is definitely sacred to me. And, um, and in a lot of these women, I mean, I have in the fact that I have to watch these friends die is a, a nightmare that I don't wish on anybody. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that it's worth it or blessing or any of that mm-hmm. sentimental stuff because I despise that. But, um, I do feel like the women that I've met have been just such incredible presences of love and mm. mercy and goodness in my life that um, I am so thankful for them. I just, just don't know what I could have done without them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I I feel like, gosh, I was just meant to meet this person just at this. And again, I'm not making any statement about God putting I, putting people where they're supposed to. I, I'm just, I don't mm-hmm. make conclusions like that. But, <laughs> but I have met people just at times when I really needed to meet them and they really needed to meet me. And that to me is also a sacred kind of moment. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I'd love for you to share some poetry that's, that's meaningful for you. Um, or okay. that's particularly, I mean, the sky's the limit here. You could pick anything you'd like. Um, because as I've been, I don't even know what to ask you to read because I can't pick. You know, it's like, oh, I've really so been, nice. um, just so enchanted with your poetry, oh, but also when I read the um, article about Lana Del Rey, I thought it was. Oh yeah, you know that's not something I'll hmm. I'll, I'll point people to that article because it's pretty long, but it's it's really about it's really honest and it's really fierce, and I love that. And yeah. and maybe you could oh, at, thank you. at least um, maybe explain what the article's about, and then maybe we could read a little poetry of your choosing afterward. Yeah, well, Lana Del Rey is a singer. She's a pop singer, and um, she has a kind of uh, uh, obsessive cult following. And <laughs> yeah. um, I don't, you know, I don't put myself in that class, but I do love her music because um, I think it's first of all a lot of it's misunderstood. But she sings a lot about vulnerability, and she's not afraid about singing about vulnerability, which not many singers do. And um, there's a video at the beginning of the video. She is she. There's a monologue. I was in the winter of my life. 
and the men I met along the road were my only summer. At night, I fell asleep with visions of myself, dancing and laughing and crying with them. Three years down the line of being on an endless world tour, and my memories of them were the only things that sustained me, and my only real happy times. I was a singer. Not a very popular one. I once had dreams of becoming a beautiful poet. But upon an unfortunate series of events, saw those dreams dashed and divided like a million stars in the night sky that I wished on over and over again, sparkling and broken. But I didn't really mind because I knew that it takes getting everything you ever wanted and then losing it to know what true freedom is. When the people I used to know found out what I had been doing, how I had been living, they asked me why. But there's no use in talking to people who have a home. They have no idea what it's like to seek safety in other people. For home to be wherever you lie your head. always an unusual girl. My mother told me I had a chameleon soul. No moral compass pointing due north. No fixed personality. Just an inner indecisiveness that was as wide and as wavering as the ocean. And if I said I didn't plan for it to turn out this way, I'd be lying. Because I was born to be the other woman who belonged to no one, who belonged to everyone, who had nothing, who wanted everything. With a fire for every experience and an obsession for freedom that terrified me to the point that I couldn't even talk about and pushed me to a nomadic point of madness that both dazzled and dizzied me. At the end of the video, you see her crawling along the desert, just screaming at, like, just at the top of her lungs, screaming to the face of somebody else. Mm -hmm. And um, she says, "You know, I'm I'm crazy, but I'm free." I believe in the person I want to become. I believe in the freedom of the open road, and my motto is the same as ever. I believe in the kindness of strangers. And when I'm at war with myself, I ride. I just ride.
Be in touch with all of your darkest fantasies. Have you created a life for yourself where you can experience them? I have. I am fucking crazy. Primal scream lives in me. You know, I, I understand this desire for t- just letting it all out and being, and it's it's a myth. We can't be free, but of total freedom of not caring what the future of living for this day of just, mm-hmm. um, I you know, not caring if I get old. Um, that I, I, I you know that appeals to me and her vulnerability in that song, the vulnerability of that scream, that sort of screaming against the universe and that she rejects the, she rejects the, the she's screaming at the abyss. It's like Nietzsche throwing flowers into the abyss. I think mm. it's Nietzsche that said that, you know, it's like, she's just, she's just screaming into the abyss and she knows the abyss is there and she's screaming into it. And mm. I, 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 I don't know. I, I just <laughs> really yeah. relate to that. Um, mm-hmm. I have times when I just want to, set things on fire and screw, which I won't, I'm not an arsonist, but you know, I mean, you know, times of this intense anger and they're balanced out by times of, of grace, Mm -hmm. um, which is even what I can really say for them. Mm. So there's a, there's a poem from, from my, my book, second bloom that I don't know why I like this poem. I just, I guess it's just, it's one of my happier poems, but it's called Cape May at dusk. And I was standing by the ocean. I find the oceans and mountains, just incredibly healing and mm. they always put me they always remind me gosh I'm so small I'm so unimportant like if you think about history and mm. the number of people on the earth and how long the earth has been here like I, my life is just nothing you know mm. it's, it's and I find that incredibly comforting I know some people find mm-hmm. it scary and nihilistic but I don't <laughs> so this is mm-hmm. a poem a poem by that about that called Cape May at Dusk At the Cape, I stood alone on a platform, watching swans gather, mallards and herons, and below me, a single rabbit feeding itself in the twilight on newly mown grass. I don't know why I'm still alive. I don't know how a line of poetry sometimes loses itself and finds me. I don't understand why my body is drawn to the marshes or to the surf dragging itself away from the shore. Why does memory cling to the briny air, settling in my hair like the sandy wind? I've wasted so many days in half-life, shopping, pop music, magazines. I should have been thinking of holiness and trying to find it. I stand and watch the rabbit, a lean, wild one, as it attends to its hunger till a little girl comes stomping over, shrieking, and it disappears in the wild roses. So that's just, I guess, a little moment where I felt some peace and grace and beauty in the universe. And those are the moments that sustain me because I do think the world's incredibly beautiful and I love Mm -hmm. life. And so um, I try to make myself really aware of those moments consciously so that I can sort of store them up and keep them in times of, of pain. I can just pull that out like a little yeah. jewel and look at it. Yeah. I've, I've felt the same way at the ocean, especially when the waves, 
they come in and they come in and they come in and there's nothing you can do about it, but you, right. you, you just let them, you know, you, right. You know, and, and you could also be panicked that they keep coming in or you can say, that's how it is. Right. You can't escape them. I mean, they're just, they're going, to, you, you can't stop it. You can't stop the tides. You, yeah. You, I remember when my son was little, he stood in the ocean, he said, stop at the waves and point at them. And, you know, it was like this uh, archetypal moment, you know, uh, like he, he had no power over the ocean. And, yeah. you know, I, I find that when I'm lying in the ocean, I, you know, I fight it to keep it from, cause it'll just fling me down, mm-hmm. bruise me. But mm-hmm. the only thing I can do is go out far enough where I'm just lying in it. I just let it. Mm-hmm carry me and I don't fight it. And that, I mean, that really is mm. so God-like to me. If I could just get in, somehow into the body and presence of God and just let it carry me and not fight it, yeah. that's the best I think I can do. Yeah. I was I was in Trinidad for, for a little time on a, a missions project thing. And the for some reason, the, the water down there seemed saltier and I floated better. And I got way hmm. out till I I mean, it wasn't deep, but it felt really far. And if I looked in the one direction, there was nothing I could see but ocean. Wow. And it was like, this is the womb of God. Yes. <laughs> it yes. felt like that. And, and I thought, you know, um, and I thought I just was laying there like a starfish out there. And I, right. and I thought, um, you know, and nothing was on my mind at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and there was something really primal and and it brought me back to, to like, it was a memory of, of something I don't even know. Like, it was something deep, deep. Just some deep connection, maybe, yeah. to, the, to your past and just all of life. Yeah, and or everyone's past. In it. Yeah. Everyone else. I mean, you know, I, um, that, I, I feel that way so much. Like, I definitely feel like when I'm in the ocean, I just... I know it's cliche, but I just feel like I'm in the womb. Yeah, you know? right, right. And I and I respect the ocean. I know the ocean is powerful and strong, and mm-hmm. it's not just my friend. But mm-hmm. but it when it carries me. But my friend had just died, and um, on the trip up to the shore, and I was really mourning her. And I lay in the ocean. It was like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. she's here. You know, mm-hmm. like she's just part of this now. I, it was mm-hmm. so comforting. It was so like. I felt like she was just there in the air and the water, like everything's mm-hmm. there, you know, nothing's lost. It's all just, mm. you know, becomes part of everything else. I, yeah. It really, it's a great feeling. Yeah. It, it, there's no, there's no name for it. It's, it's an ineffable spirit. It's ineffable, right. Yeah. Right. I love that word ineffable. That's how I just, that's how I feel like it's just ineffable. You can't <laughs> put it in words. Exactly. And that's really what poetry and, and poets seek to, to do is somehow right. with with just a little bit of words get towards something ineffable, right? Right, and it, you but you can never you can approach it, right. but you can never pin it down. I mean, you can yeah. just ask the question. You can just to me, it's an image. I can just present an image that to me is um, divine in some way. Like you know, I mean, I know this is so Rilkean, but like roses, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's something that's or a mountaintop. There's, I can mm-hmm. present that image and it's a divine image, but I, I can't, I'm not going to ex- explain in some mm-hmm. silly manner why I think that's divine or holy or mm-hmm. sacred, but mm-hmm. um, I think the image can draw you in. Yeah, yeah it's a pathway or, or something. There's more. Yes. It points mm-hmm. off the map. But but that's what's so, um, because because that's kind of what the spiritual or the the, the inner world and then the 
world that's that is between us that is between people is is also mm-hmm. not measurable exactly but it's so right. real it's more real right and yeah that's yeah. that's what's so beautiful about the arts and poetry and and writing and all the rest is that everybody's acknowledging that this this thing <laughs> that you can't weigh is more real right right exactly yeah oh. yeah the, well and um I think you can get, I think in writing, first of all, it's definitely, to me, the image is the main thing. And sort of like when I grew up with icons, you you don't worship the icon. People don't understand that. You just, but you're looking into the icon and it's sort of drawing you in to something that's not human. Um, Mm. And so I think of the image as as an icon. And I also think of sound as a way to reach God. Um, I mean, clearly music can mm-hmm. put you in that space, but even in poetry, just the repetitions of S sounds or of mm-hmm. vowels, I mean, there's certain things that sound does to your brain that makes you more receptive, I think, mm-hmm. to the sacred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it, it really does. It okay. really does. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm with you I all the way. cheesy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it, there, there are people who maybe don't understand that if they're not reading poetry but for some reason people seem to be more uh, it must be the times we're living in people are more receptive to poetry more receptive to the arts now because there isn't enough space and that seems to create some well I think um we need a relief too because if if this world is all there is Mm. it's a terrible terrible world Mm. and and I think poetry can give us not it's not escapist because I think good poetry can force us into empathy. Mm-hmm. It, can, it, it can bring us to empathy and together with the world, but it's like an armor in a way. It's like a it's it's like a protection against the the filth and mm-hmm. cruelty and hatred of the world. I, I think that poetry can make us feel like there is something. The beauty does exist and something be, that we don't understand does exist. And if we can tap into that somehow, whether it's looking at a, a painting or listening to music or reading a poem, I, I think it's, the arts are so important because it's very easy to get caught up in anger towards the now. And, mm-hmm. and so you need to protect yourself, you know, mm-hmm. you need to protect yourself from it, I think, in some way. And mm-hmm. I think art can do that. Yeah, it's, it was Denise Levertov said, the the definition of poetry is to awaken sleepers by means other than shock. Oh gosh, that's so that's perfect. Yes, and, that's exactly. I mean, yeah, oh. that's perfect. Because <laughs> you do want to awaken the sleepers. I, mean, I don't want my poetry to be escapist in the way that okay, now I don't have to think about <sighs> things that are happening in the world. That, but I but I want them to feel like they'll be they can be held up somehow, you know, yeah. by others. Yeah, incredible. Um, are there is there are there any projects? I know you teach English at Mercer mm-hmm. University, and what do you tend to to teach? Um, well, let's see. I teach uh, I teach a lot of different courses, mm-hmm. um, but I teach. What well, my favorite thing to teach really is fairy tales. Mm. Um, I love fairy tales. They're one of my primary um, ways of understanding the world mm-hmm. um, because. Um, they seem so simplistic and obvious and you know they're they're called depthless because mm. the characters are kind of they're not individualistic they don't tell you how they feel really 
very often, but um, there's so many ways to read the fairy tale. Like, so for example, Cinderella, we're so disnified that we think that Cinderella is really a poem about a girl finding the right prince to escape with, but <laughs> it's not about that to me. I mean, it's about, it's about a girl who's mourning her mother mm-hmm. and going to the grave of her mother and weeping. Mm-hmm. And it's about her process of being healed through her mother's love. So it's not, to me, it's not even a love story. It's about a mother and a daughter. And mm-hmm. I like that at fairy tales because you can sort of find your own life's journey and what you need in the fairy tales. And they're like little, they're just like little, little, um, keys, like little gateways into understanding yourself or understanding what the world is. Mm-hmm. And so I love teaching fairy tales and just letting students read what they want in them and, and what they take from them, which is often very different than what you would expect. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was just I was just going through on Netflix. You can they have um, Joseph Campbell and the power of myth in a series on there. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, my yeah, gosh. I'm I'm in He's love. so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I love. Well, we always do Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Yeah. Right. And um, some of you poo poo that and they say, oh, it's so everyone knows that. and It's so general. But you know what? It's that's just what that's what life is. I mean, I'm uh-huh. sorry, but some some metaphors are around because they work, you know, uh-huh. and our lives are experiences of setting out, meeting obstacles, mm-hmm. being overcome or taming the obstacles, finding people to help us. I mean, this all happens to us over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. people recognize themselves in that and they recognize themselves in that. And they recognize that in, in fairy tales and in literature and in art, mm-hmm. they recognize that, that constant sense of making yourself and yeah. and being. It's not just like you just are. I mean, you're always becoming. Yeah. The the one, the oldest, the last one I watched was the oldest myths are always about death, life and death and the, oh, and, uh, the cycle and the, the oldest, um, agricultural myths are always the the planting of something to to have food the the um like the killing of a lover then you plant them and then they yes. they sprout up yes. something for to feed the the village yes um, exactly yeah and it's and it's um they're everywhere in every culture and and it's just so um, remarkable but it's always the sacrifice um a sacrifice of something to, to bring up something else and death and rebirth. And just like all of the, the things in, in nature have these cycles and, um, but, but how he describes it in these, in these kind of macro narratives, um, and then how they play out in all of the daily little deaths that we have, you know, the little deaths of letting something Mm -hmm. go or, or forgiveness Mm -hmm. or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really powerful stuff. If you, if you ingest it and um, it's kind of, it's just like the fairy tale stuff and that those are the myths too. And those are the myths that help us understand ourselves. Well, and there are so many myths about, I mean, well, it's Cinderella with the mother being buried and coming back as a tree. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, I love those regeneration myths. Mm -hmm. And I think, but I think they obviously, like you said, they're everywhere. They're profound. They speak to us. Um, speak to our need to go on somehow. And I you know, I think of someone like your father or of me, someone who dies before their children are old, mm-hmm. that that's a sacrifice that I, I don't want to make that sacrifice. Um, and your father didn't want to make that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like, it's not like it's an easy, happy thing, but my hope is that, 
something else will come out of that that will enable the world to come forward, mm. go forward in a positive way. I don't know what that could what that is. But in your father's case, it's you and your own and your work. And I hope that it'll be something positive with my son so that mm. you know my life will continue and continue and continue and on and on and on until my name's my name doesn't matter, my name will be forgotten, whatever mm. doesn't matter, but I'm still gonna be present in some way in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is everlasting life. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on your Guggenheim Fellowship for Poetry oh, this year. I, I think that is, that's just brilliant. And I, I was wondering, I'm not sure, because I don't know about these th- how these things work, but is there something that you wind up working on with, with that fellowship, or how does that work? Yeah, you well, you first of all, I was I'm so grateful and stunned to receive when I I almost fell off my chair um, <laughs> because I'm just such a you know I'm a I'm a pretty reclusive poet um, and uh, so my project is working on my fifth book and my project has changed a little bit um, when I first applied I've been reading the book of Frederica Myrucker the work of her of Frederica Myrucker she's a fabulous, fabulous um, Austrian contemporary poet, and her, and she writes spiritual poetry, but her project is really to blast language into um, new forms, and I wanted to do that, but then the election happened, and things started happening in the country that I was disturbed by, you know, I, I went to a parking lot, and there was a, a white woman just screaming at this black woman who was sitting in her car, about how the black woman had parked too close to her car, but it was something obviously weird and unearned and, and um, threatening and awful. And mm. um, so my, my husband just went over and said, you know, can I help her? Is there a problem? And the woman went away, the angry woman. Um, but it was like there had been a hatred unleashed in the world. And mm. that changed my poetry because all of a sudden I started thinking, I have to address somehow what's happening in the world. And I have to reach ordinary people who might not read a lot of poetry. And so my next book is really, it does have more political poems in it. Um, not political poems than vote for so-and-so, but mm. poems that are just dealing with, with the fact that we have to stop and look at ourselves as human beings and what we're becoming and, mm. you know, um, not be evil, <laughs> you know, I mean, just, yeah. <laughs> try to to get to the goodness and godness in ourselves and um so that's what i'm working on yeah, yeah. so it's my fifth collection oh. and i hope i'm gonna have that done in the fall oh well, that's great um where are some of the best places people can find your your work your website things like um that? well i have a website anya oh gosh AnyaSilverPoet.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I should check that. It's AnyaSilver.com, I think. Um, Anya, no, it's AnyaSilverPoet.com. Mm-hmm. I really need to know that. Um, and then <laughs> I'll I put a link. A, I'll put a link in the show notes. No that's worries. That's very nice because that's so embarrassing. I don't know my own um, uh, website. And then I have four books. I have, um, and they're all on Amazon. So if you just type in Anya Silver Poetry, you can the four books will just pop up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Three of them are published by LSU, and the last one is published by um, in the Poema Poetry Series, Second Bloom. That's the most overtly religious, I would say, of the four mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, wrestling with God and, mm-hmm. 
and I love you, God, but I'm mad at you, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm glad that those books are out there because I think, you know, the way I was raised and I think some people were raised is that that is not allowed. You, how dare right. you like mm -hmm. raise your fist or have questions or doubts. And I think that that, that winds up alienating us from ourselves and, I, and from God yeah. within um, so that you, there's nowhere to find consolation and rest. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it turns people away from the church. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, Jesus himself on the cross said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't saying, thanks, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for, for this fun experience. I mean, mm -hmm. he, was in, he was suffering. He was right. in pain, you know. Right. And, and he expressed that in a human way. And yeah. um, I, I feel like if Jesus does it, if Job does it, if, mm -hmm. if you know, Amos and Isaiah do it. Why, why can't I express that? I mean, mm -hmm. God is big enough to handle whatever mm -hmm. emotions I'm going to throw at God. It's not like God's a person who's going to get insulted and, and walk off. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just such a silly way to think about um, God who is, who must be limitless. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just no other way for me to think about God. Mm -hmm. If God's not limitless, doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, and if you're actually feeling those feelings, but saying and trying to feel something else, what use is that? <laughs> you know, right? And that's just painful and right. sublimation. I don't think that's good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, would you like to read us out with one more poem? Oh goodness! Uh, yeah, I'm putting what you is... on the spot so bad. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, I should have thought about this more. You know, I'm going to read a very short one. Okay. But I like it. Um, it's just because it makes me happy. Um, but it's a very short one. It's the last poem from Second Bloom, which is my last book. So um, this is, is um, based on, I went to, my mother still visits Germany and so where she grew up. And so I went with her to Germany and we were sitting outside this, um, the ruins of a castle and there was a little rose climbing up. It was just heavenly. And so I wrote about, I wrote about that. It's called, this poem is called August. The small pink rose by the castle gate glows in the twilight, gathering strands of sunset in its petals. The tower's a ruin, but I keep my eye on the rose, on its many hooded gaze that doesn't turn away from what approaches. To bloom is so foolish that it must be wisdom. Oh. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're such a thank gift. You. You're such a joy. Oh, gosh. That's so very kind of you to say. That makes me very happy. Um, really, really pleased to hear your I'm, your poetry. And Thank you so much. It was so much fun talking to you. I hope you'll come on maybe when your next book comes out and you come back on a little bit and share it. Oh, I'd love to. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yes, this has been delightful. I just <laughs> have had such a – this really made me think, which is what I like to do. So this is wonderful.
Every night I used to pray that I'd find my people. And finally, 